Good afternoon, listeners. This is Alan Karbelnig once again, uh, presenting an entirely different set of lectures, podcasts, I guess they'd be called lectures, on the 10 key ideas in the 110, 120-year history of psychoanalysis. Obviously, this is somewhat of a random selection. There is a big four that Oh, virtually all psychoanalysts, even Jungian-oriented ones, would agree with, and that is the idea of the unconscious, which I devote an entire episode to, uh, and three really subsets of the unconscious, which is repetition, uh, transference, which is how the internal drama presents in the relationship with the analyst, and uh, dreams or other signifiers of the unconscious. So those are four. But what I'm going to do today is provide you with a, a, a um, philosophical introduction. If you have any more interest in me, there's another separate introduction to me. Um, and, uh, and here comes the list of ten before I give you the philosophical introduction to the entire field. Um, uh, number one is going to be the, the unconscious, which I'm going to include disavowed, denied, and just simply uncomfortable features like um, those of you that are clinicians or patients will know that there are experiences or um, that you've had or activities that you don't like to even talk much to yourself about, let alone others. But uh, let me stop myself from getting too into each of these. So that's number one, unconscious. Number two, repetition compulsion, which may be thought of as, it's an old Freudian word, but it may be thought of our propensity to get involved in psychobehavioral repetitive patterns, whether it's abusive relationships, negative ways we treat ourselves, um, etc. Number three is transference, which I already mentioned. Number four is dreams and other signifiers of the unconscious. Freud called dreams the royal road. The fact is, it's it's evident in a multitude of um, aspects of human beings' behavior, thought, appearance, mode of dress, of gestures, etc., etc. <clears throat> Number five is going to be about the internal and external drama. Internal drama is really the field of of object relations theory as it is known, uh, but I really want to highlight how it ideally runs parallel with the external drama or external world. <clears throat> that was number five. Number six is projective identification, which I presented in another set of lectures, but to me this is one of the ten top ideas, and with that introject introjection there is this dichotomous process of projection and introjection that forms a lot of the internal world and actually is a lot about how the depth psychotherapies work. Um, number seven is going to be a survey of developmental theory, really the, um, the psychological development of the human subject. Number eight is countertransference, which really deserves its own lecture, particularly since beginning in the second half of the 20th century, a lot more attention was paid to the way analysts feel toward their patients and how that informs them in their work. 
Number nine is essentialism versus relational approaches. Basically, uh, that's talked about a lot in terms of one person versus two person psychology. Um, I'll explain that a lot more if you survive to a number nine. (laughs) Number 10 and last is my own little belief system that what depth psychotherapists offer are sets of transformational encounters. They are structured, like I talked about in the first set of podcasts, they are all psychoanalytic psychotherapies work through framing presence and engagement. They frame a relationship with boundaries upon it. They bring their full attention to their patients, and then they engage their patients in various types of verbal and nonverbal behaviors uh, to promote self-knowledge and basically to promote transformation. Thus, the phrase transformational encounters. Uh, There have been immense arguments over should the word psychoanalysis be limited to five times a week or four times a week or lying on a couch or not? I've never really believed in any of those controversies. I think you can do a psychoanalytic session in a half-hour appointment, although I never do those. Uh, Two-hour appointments, once a week, twice a week. Um, the only where, place I would draw a line here is it does need to be at least once a week or else... Um, Psychoanalytic therapy is a bit like orthodontia. You have to keep pressure on the chronic repetitive patterns to get them to change. So, okay, end of my introducing the 10 topics. Uh, Now I'm going to move on to giving you the philosophical introduction. Let me first start with the political one. You know, we live in the modern, this is well into the 21st century. I don't want to say the date to have this podcast be dated, Um, But uh, in the developed world, anyway, there is a mostly capitalism, <clears throat> like it or not, even in countries like China, where they have an alleged communist government, it's really uh, hyper-capitalism. So people are going to pay you a fee, and I should have mentioned, as I did in my last set of lectures, this is intended for or anyone interested in psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic therapy, but I'm really um, kind of uh, imagining my audience audience to be beginning practitioners or beginning patients. So we have to consider the socioeconomic, at least in the developed world, and that's that someone is coming in and paying a fee for a transformative experience. Uh, Many psychoanalytic authors compare this type of work to medicine, I think it couldn't be more different. Although, just to be nice and contradictory, I will be uh, contradicting myself at various points along the way by offering medical analogies. But the main difference is that we psychoanalytic therapists are experts in facilitation. The, The information is in the patient's behavior and in their dreams and in their memories and in Uh, the course of their lives thus far. Um, It is in their unconscious minds. We are experts at facilitating the elucidation of those patterns, attitudes, beliefs, feelings, etc. So there is an exchange of money, unfortunately, for what then needs to be a highly structured 
uh, encounter, whether it's 10 sessions or 5,000, whether it's three months or 25 years. Um, so it is a service that's being sold in the state of California where I'm delivering this. There's, I think, five licenses that would allow you to deliver, deliver this kind of service. And so uh, psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic psychotherapy is uh, among the two most popular types of psychotherapies in the world, the other being the cognitive behavioral. And of course, I'm not really counting the psychotropic medication, which can be very helpful to some people, um, but is not anywhere anything like what depth psychotherapy uh, involves. Um, I think that's about it for the sociopolitical. Um, as I mentioned in my other set of 10, I think all philosophical discussions need to be grounded in absolute mystery. We know almost nothing about anything, and the sum of our knowledge is uh, just frighteningly limited, uh, although we can think otherwise. Uh, I am not... Um, I don't think it's true that our lives are, as the Hindus believe, uh, just part of Vishnu's dream. But I've reached the point in my own uh, knowledge, if you will, of not being able to entirely rule out that that could be possible. So we don't know anything about anything. But uh, what are some of the philosophical bases of the psychoanalytic project? Well, number one, I would say, is um, free will. Uh, that people like Sam Harris, who I'm very interested in his writings and podcasts, although I disagree with him, thinks, no, no such thing as free will. You're sitting here right this moment listening to this lecture is entirely predetermined by prior events um, in your life, by antecedents. I don't buy it. I am what is known in philosophical circles as a compatibilist, meaning that I think there is freedom and determinism uh, together. Um, uh, so uh, to give a dumb example, uh, there may be a bunch of ways to understand how you got to a restaurant at a particular time and place uh, with a particular person. But um, there's just, two, even if there are antecedent variables, they are in such dynamic relationship with unfolding processes, because we human beings are verbs, not nouns. Uh, every time we reflect on ourselves, we've already missed the moment. Uh, because we're, we're, we're unfolding, we're aging, we're developing. Um, uh, that I believe things like choosing what you want um, to eat at the restaurant or altering relationship patterns, altering beliefs in the way you view uh, however you conceive of the fiction uh, that you've created uh, to consider yourself. Or your or your other to someone else, um, d there is free will involved there, and that would pretty much end the psychoanalytic project if that weren't true. But no worries, uh, philosophers have been studying it for almost four thousand years now. Uh, nobody has solved it. Uh, you make choices. You can be like Sam Free uh, Harris, a determinist, 
or like me, a compatibilist, or uh, I forget the other uh, word for someone who just believes everything is, uh, like Sartre, um, existence it precedes essence. Your freedom to choose your life is bigger than even whatever it is that makes you. So that's philosophical foundation number one. Number two, I want to go back to someone I wish I knew a lot more about, Immanuel Kant, who was writing in the end of the 1700s, who completely changed the history of Western philosophy, which is actually separated into pre-Kantian versus post-Kantian philosophers. And Immanuel Kant thought that human knowledge is very limited because we can only know the world through um, our five senses and our central nervous system. So the entire contents of the biggest library on the planet, or all of them together, are all based on things that we human beings can perceive and process in our, in our uh, brains. There's a couple things that he thought were a priori, uh, like time, I believe, space, I believe, I'm not sure. But um, very important as a foundation, just it really kind of emphasizes my ultimate foundation of mystery, because um, who knows, uh, even mathematics has its limits, and there's no way to prove anything definitively. I think we should begin every encounter with a patient with a sense of mystery, of not um, uh, being like... um, Oh, I'm blocking in his name. Columbo, the detective. Um, I don't know what's going on, and let's learn together why you feel sad, uh, why you keep getting in relationships where uh, the woman cheats on you or the man doesn't really love you. Um, uh, which reminds me, a loose end from when I was talking about the problem comparing this to medicine is see. We psychoanalysts do learn a lot about psychoanalytic theories. I think ideally you read a lot, you watch a lot of movies, you see a lot of plays, you want to really get to know culture as much as you can. But ultimately we offer patients with metaphors for understanding themselves, but it's them we're working on. Whereas when you go to see, say, an infectious disease specialist because you have some bizarro fever, you count on her or him having a big uh, knowledge base about infectious diseases, viruses, bacteria, and part of what you're paying for is for that. Now, there's a little bit of an overlap with psychoanalysis there, but it's it's very, very different because, uh, again, and hopefully for the last time, we are facilitators. That's what we're good at. We're talk show hosts without any of the negatives attached to that. Um, we We help people look at their lives. And we play a certain social role in doing that. All right, so told you about Kant, uh, just really limits of epistemology, limits of knowledge. Now, one of the ways that psychoanalysis got off on the wrong foot is the development of logical positivism in the 1800s. A guy named August Comte, C-O-M-T-E, who thought you should only stick to knowledge that could be positively proved through experience or logical or mathematical proofs. He was part of, uh, no, uh, after him came the Vienna School. They're the ones that coined the term logical positivism. And you may not have known that uh, 
medical schools in the United States did not even have a standardized curriculum until 1923. It's questionable whether you got any benefit from physicians prior to that time other than just chance uh, because of the unavailability of antibiotics and all kinds of amazing treatments and surgical interventions that are present now. But my view, shared by many, is that uh, the, the scientific method, logical positivism, empiricism, whatever we're going to call it, is awesome. Saved my life on two occasions at least. Um, probably has saved many of you listeners' lives. But to think in it, it can explain everything, mm, no, not even close to buying it. And that's where I uh, have a big difference with Sam Harris. Um, so I'm going to move on now, kind of emphasizing something I already talked about, about just uh, humility and lack of certitude, and that's a thing called Gerdell's Proof. Gerdell was a contemporary of Einstein, and uh, he didn't get nearly as much press as Einstein did because he uh, basically said you can never have a full system of any type, not mathematical not um, systems, because you always, it basically it comes down to what's called the self-referential uh, fallacy. Um, uh, so the, the reference to the self causes uh, difficulties, um, and thus the reason for humility. Here's, a, a, I think, the clearest way to think about it. There can never be a complete map of the world because the map would have to include the process of the map maker making the map, which is, of course, impossible. This leads to issues like objectivity versus subjectivity. I think there, those are points of view, uh, but only, only points of view, and they're not um, reducible to one another. There's a hilarious new journal in psychoanalysis called Neuropsychoanalysis, where they're working really hard to kind of make this a non-dualistic phenomenon. And I am a non-dualist personally, like I think, like I believe in Spinoza's God, if you will, which is that, as Einstein did, which is that we're all part of one something. Form and energy is another way to think about it. Form and energy. Um, but, uh, um, those are, the, there, there's a guy named Owen Rennick who coined a phrase in psychoanalysis called the psychoanalyst, I, th I think he's referring to the analyst and or the patient, quote unquote, irreducible subjectivity. Yes, there are, there are neurochemicals squirting in your brain right this second as they are in mine, but does that... Um, allow us to access the experience of this moment, me speaking, you listening? No. And so that leads to my final point, which is traceable to the ancient Greeks uh, and also uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And that is a simple word uh, called, uh, known as perspectivism. And then the, another way to think of that is angle, uh, ideology, viewpoint, that particularly when it comes to human subjectivity, which I and many people believe is what psychoanalysis is all about, 
what does human subjectivity mean? The experience of being a human being. Your experience right now, this moment, your feelings, your reflections on your relationship, your memory, um, your dreams, all of those things are part of your subjective experience. And uh, it can be viewed through a variety of perspectives. Uh, when you're dead, they can cut you open and look at how your organs, and including your brain, function, although that will also be incomplete. That's something else about being in your young 60s is things start to become much more gray. What was what you sort of enjoyed as a black and white, particularly in your teens and 20s, just gets blurry because all these perspectives on human subjectivity, they all come to a finite endpoint. And psychoanalysis, for the record, absolutely does. We far from have answers to human problems. There's a Jungian named James Hillman who wrote a book titled something like 100 Years of Psychoanalysis and the word is, world is no better off than it ever was. You got a great point. Uh, uh, I'm just saying that the psychoanalytic project, and hopefully you can tell from my voice tone moving toward a conclusion now, is one of many uh, angles, perspectives, ideologies, viewpoints, mythologies to use in understanding human subjectivity. So it has its own language which is unfortunate. It uses a ton of metaphors, but of course, language itself consists of metaphors. But I guess for the record, and uh, bringing this particular lecture to a close, the final of, it turns out, six philosophies that's a foundation to the psychoanalytic project is perspectivism, that we bring uh, you as patients, we as practitioners. I've obviously been a patient many different times, Uh if you go into a psychoanalytic psychotherapy or psychoanalytic situation, I hate to use the word treatment because it implies illness, and that's a whole other story because sometimes it does and most of the times it doesn't. Um, the psychoanalyst and you are going to both be using this perspective of psychoanalysis to understand the meaning of your dreams, the meaning of your relationships, why it might be that you feel sad a lot of the time. Um, or angry, um, disconnected from your family, overly enmeshed with your family, etc. I guess I also want to say for the record, this in no way invalidates other approaches. I have a patient who um, has severe uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. He sees a behavioral psychologist once a month for certain behavioral strategies to prevent this kind of multiple checking of locks and hand-washing, and he consults me to work on uh, deeper themes, if I may be bold enough to say that, like uh, lack of trust in the future, uh, to really address the basic anxiety that the obsessive-compulsive behaviors are trying to fend off. Same with medication. It works very nicely with psychoanalytic therapies when indicated. Sometimes you meet someone that has a sad uh, feeling, and there's no, their life is fantastic. You get to know them a bit, and you learn about a family history of depression, and et cetera, and it turns out that the depth psychotherapies would really be the best for them. So on that note, that concludes this philosophical introduction to the 10 
key ideas. And again, they are free will, the existence of free will. Number two, the limits of knowledge that Immanuel Kant pointed out. Number three, the limits of logical positivism, also known as positivism, empiricism, etc. Number four, Godel's proof, which is that there is no complete system, and certainly not the psychoanalytic one. Number five had to do with looking at objectivity versus subjectivity, which are just, again, different perspectives. And number six, I think most importantly, is just this idea of perspectivism coined by the ancient Greeks and Nietzsche. And the humble position that we psychoanalysts, whether patients or practitioners, are just bringing one perspective to the realm of the experience of being human. Of course, I would think it's a helpful one. I have a bias, but uh, it is only one. And I really appreciate your interest in these podcasts and hope they are helpful to you. And with that note, I bring this one to an end.